As I prepared to talk about the historical books of the Old Testament, I found the task daunting. Initially, I decided to give a brief overview of each of the 12 books, followed by a summary relating the books to our lived experience of God. This approach did not go well. I didn't want to subject you to a mind-numbing run through 1,200 years of writings and history, and I struggled to present a cohesive theme. So I'm going to approach this talk the other way around. I'll start with a theme, with the way that God spoke to me through these scriptures, and work my way through the books focusing on this theme. I worry about this approach. I hope I'm offering an insight into these scriptures, but I know it's only one insight, and I'm pretty certain I would have chosen something different at another time in my life. My point is that when you read these books, God will likely be present to you in a different way. Trust yourself. You are reading the Bible within a community, and the commentary you have is excellent. You won't go astray. Be open to how God wants to speak to you, and not limited by my experience. The theme that I want to focus on is how our heart changes with success. This theme grows out of the biblical books, Walter Brueggemann's book, David's Truth in Israel's Imagination and Memory, and some of the work of social psychologist Paul Puff, who studies the impact of wealth and power on how a person treats the poor. I'm going to divide the path of success into two pieces, the striving to become successful and reaching success. I see a significant change in heart that occurs during this journey. I see it in myself and in others, and I see it in the creating of Israel as a nation and the rise of David from sheepherder to king. In my experience, we often start the journey to success feeling ill-equipped, but nonetheless, we are idealistic and ready for the adventure. This journey is seldom straightforward, and it requires hard work and fortitude. We make mistakes and struggle to survive. We cry out to God for mercy, and our heart is alternately filled with hope and despair. Yet we cling to our desire for success. We have a sense of fighting the good fight and of working towards something noble. There are no promises of success, and we need faith to persist. During this time, we typically have an open heart, a sense of being free, and we're willing to take risks. We value relationships. We have little to protect and everything to gain. If we achieve success, however we define that personally or professionally, we feel proud of what we have accomplished and often marvel at the path we've taken. We recognize the risk and hard work that went into our achievement. We now have what we value, and we must protect it. We become more risk aversive. We may not trust people who have less than we do or who might be competitors. During this time, we have little to gain and everything to lose. Relationship is less important to us. Our hearts are not as open. This view of success is what struck me about the journey of the Israelites and King David in the historical books. But I also think these stories illuminate our human nature and our tendency towards idolatry. 
Remember that when the Israelites started their journey in Egypt, they entered into a covenant with God. Yahweh the Lord would be their God, and they would be God's people. They start with relationship, and their journey is focused on how to live the covenant. It is that journey, which is never-ending, that should be the gold standard of success for both the Israelites and for us. But somehow, the intermediate successes along the way derail people from their God-given covenant, and success becomes an idol. It was this insight that made it worthwhile for me to struggle through the historical books. The first historical book is Joshua. It begins after the Israelites have completed 40 years of wandering in the desert, and they're poised to enter the Promised Land. This journey has been fraught with challenges, usually revolving around the inability of the tribes to stay focused on the covenant. And as we work our way through the books of Joshua and Judges, the fundamental message remains focused on this covenant. It's important to remember that the books we are reading were not written at the time of the events. Historians estimate that the Israelites entered Canaan around 1240 BC, and that the books of Joshua through 2 Kings were completed in the 700s BC by editors in the Deuteronomist tradition. This editing occurred hundreds of years after the events and was the culmination of a long oral history. Perhaps even more important is that these storytellers had no intention of describing events as they factually happened. Instead, their point is to drive home the philosophy that when the Israelites stay focused on the covenant, when they follow the law, then their lives go well. When they don't live their lives according to the law, then God punishes them and their lives are miserable. This naive understanding of God's action in the world was the norm at that time, as was the idea that God was the source of both good and evil events. Even knowing this, I found these books challenging. The Deuteronomist image of a vengeful God combined with horrific violence was impossible for me to reconcile with the Gospels where Jesus tells us that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You and I are not required to buy into this Deuteronomist image of God. I found that looking past these issues made it easier for me to hear God's voice in these books. The books of Joshua and Judges describe a time when the Israelites are figuring out who they are. In the book of Joshua, God is with them and they easily win their battles when the people follow the law. Once the Israelites are quasi-established in the Promised Land, the book of Judges illustrates the need to follow the law through stories in which people cycle through sin, punishment, crying out to God, and God sending a leader called a judge to reestablish peace. It is in Judges that the Israelites start asking for a king like other nations, and the Deuteronomists have a mixed feeling about this. Yahweh is the king of the Israelites, but without a human leader, the people repeatedly fall into sin. The book of Judges ends with these words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own sight.
In the books of Samuel, the Israelites continue to ask for a human king. The people are moving away from their individual and tribal responsibility to live the covenant, and instead, they want to rely on a king to listen to God for them, tell them what they should do, and protect them from their enemies. But the Israelites will pay a heavy price for this shift in responsibility. As Samuel, who's both prophet and judge, tells the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the king will enlist their sons into his army and make them do his plowing and harvesting. He will take their daughters for his perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of what they own and make them pay tithes. There is a steep price to pay, and the Israelites agree to pay it. God gives permission for Saul to become their first king. The story of Saul is odd. Sometimes he behaves as a coward, and sometimes as a brave leader. He struggles to do God's will. Soon after Saul becomes king, the Lord tells Samuel that he regrets choosing Saul. We meet young David shortly after this announcement, and we're told that he's God's new choice for king. But first, he must prove himself. I want to skip ahead briefly. Once David becomes king, the Israelites experience the success they have been seeking. They have a king like other nations, and they are a force to be reckoned with. The Israelites have conquered the Promised Land with Joshua, and they have struggled with regional leaders in the Book of Judges. And through all of this, the covenant at Sinai is remembered. But it's not the people's focus like it was in the desert. Becoming a nation has become their definition of success, and idolatry in one form or another is rampant. The Israelites' fortunes are tied to David and his success. When Samuel arrives at David's father's house to anoint the new king, David is not even in the running. He is the youngest and is out tending the sheep. But after being chosen, he experiences a meteoric rise in importance to King Saul, who we are told is tormented by an evil spirit from the Lord. I feel compassion for Saul. The relationship between Saul, his son Jonathan, and David is very close. Saul really didn't want to be king, yet now he's desperately trying to maintain his success. David has no ambition to usurp Saul, whom he considers to be God's chosen king. And David and Jonathan are the best of friends. Jonathan sees David's leadership potential and submits himself to David by giving him his cloak, his military dress, and even his sword, bow, and belt. David demonstrates fearlessness and loyalty to Saul by volunteering to challenge Goliath and undertaking every military mission asked of him. He is successful, and Saul becomes jealous. Isn't it odd? Saul, who didn't want to be king, feels threatened by young David, who loves him and his son Jonathan. And Saul loves David, but he plots against him anyway. So strong is his need to protect his success. I want to quickly point out that Jonathan is different from his father. In handing over his garb and weapons, he's choosing to step aside as heir to the throne. 
Jonathan chooses love of his friend over power, even though he's a brave warrior and loyal to his father. Jonathan and his father die in battle. With these deaths, David becomes king of Judah, but Saul's son, Ishbal, becomes king of the northern 11 tribes. Throughout David's rise to power, he is honorable. When Saul was pursuing him, David could have easily killed Saul, but refused to do it. David's friendship with Jonathan was unshakable, and David's men trusted him in battle. But when we get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we see a shift. David is now king of all the tribes of Israel. The text tells us that when the time comes for kings to go to war, David sends others to do his fighting, and he naps in the afternoon. One evening, he sees Bathsheba, the wife of a high-ranking soldier named Uriah, and decides to have sex with her while Uriah is out fighting. The result of David's adultery is Bathsheba's pregnancy. David tries to cover up his sin by ensuring that Uriah is killed in battle, and then he takes Bathsheba as one of his wives. This is an outrageous series of sins. It is a common saying that power corrupts, but organizational psychologist Adam Grant disagrees. He posits that success does not corrupt, but instead releases people from the constraints they felt during their rise to power. This is not a flattering image of David, but more importantly, it's a cautionary tale. Power and success are not friendly to us. They often expose our wounds and shortcomings that we struggle to control. David eventually admits his guilt to the prophet Nathan and repents, but things are never the same. David's reign becomes a constant struggle. As David nears death, he appoints his son Solomon as king, and he warns Solomon to walk in God's ways and keep his ordinances and decrees. Solomon is even more successful than David, increasing the size of Israel and securing the kingdom, but he fails to temper his success. He taxes his people heavily and amasses chariots and horses. Most problematic is that his heart is turned by his many wives. He builds shrines to their foreign gods. Solomon has lost his way. He has let his success lead him away from the covenant. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, succeeds him, but there is immediately trouble. He does not show mercy to the northern tribes of Israel who ask for tax relief and instead promises more taxes. Do you see how far removed this king is from his people compared to young David? Rehoboam has no sense of kinship. The relationship with his people is broken and the northern tribes break away from him. Never again will the kingdom be whole. From this point on, there's a dizzying series of kings for both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Some are good kings, most are not. In the year of 721 BC, around the time of the editing of these books by the Deuteronomists, Israel falls to the Assyrians and many are deported from the northern kingdom. Judah holds on for another 134 years before they fall to the Babylonians, are also deported, 
and the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. The monarchy of the Israelites, which lasted in Judah for over 433 years, is over. This feels like a failure. All the hope put into the promised land seems unwarranted. But that isn't quite true. You see, it is from this apparent failure that Judaism is spread throughout the known world. The people of God, who could not keep from chasing idols during the monarchy, now establish synagogues, and they worship one God. In their failure to live out their hope for the promised land, they succeeded in living out the covenant. Oh, not perfectly. We never live it out perfectly. But somehow, in what looked like complete failure, God succeeded. Yahweh is their God, and they became God's people. The historical books from 1 Chronicles through 2 Maccabees were edited or written after the Babylonian exile. In these books, the people desire to recapture what was lost, but a new path has been set, one that will last until modern times. Judaism will give birth to Christianity, and new leaders, like the Apostle Paul, will spiritually struggle to nourish budding church communities. God assures Paul during this difficult time with these words, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Paul internalizes God's wisdom and responds, I am content with weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Eventually, the Christian church will grow strong and succeed, and at times, more times than I would hope, we will lose its way and violate the covenant. And once again, we see that success is not a friendly energy for people who want to follow God. What a journey we've been on. There is much wisdom in the Bible. I pray that you will be blessed mightily as you journey through the Old Testament. And I hope that when you think you're failing and you can't find God, you will trust that God has found you and that God's love sustains you. Shalom.